leave, if you turn your Bibles with me to Proverbs 21. It's always a challenge to find a title to capture a sermon. And I entitled it The Christian's Pride. That can be taken out of context. The Christian's Pride. And then I thought, well, battling pride with pride, uh, that needs to be um, unfolded a little bit because that can be taken out of context too. So I I wrote, well, battling the pride of self with the glory of God, and I, I think I've settled there. In Proverbs 21, we will be examining the, the, the heart of wickedness as pride, in order that we might draw from the promises of God's glory to engage our hearts and to humble us and to give Him great glory. It's so ironic, I'm sure you've heard this uh, many times, that the Christians are not only the most prideful, egotistical people, but also the most self-deprecating people. And I hear that a lot. We hold the God's word high and we talk about sin, um, and that's perceived as being prideful, even though we are saying we're submitting to a higher authority, to God's word. And so we're simply proclaimers. And so we're exhibiting humility by resting upon what God has said in his word, but that is perceived to the world as prideful. Of course, they look at religion, uh, Christianity particularly, as an opinion among other opinions. So how prideful is it of us? At the same time, believers talk about, well, our personal sin. We desire to exalt Jesus Christ. And so we, we, we're not afraid of sin in the sense that we don't need to hide behind self-justification and blame-shifting. We don't need to act as Adam and Eve did, hiding behind the bushes, afraid of their shame and guilt before God. That doesn't mean that we don't struggle with that principally, but we have a righteousness in Jesus Christ. And so in light of that, as Paul said in Romans 5, where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. And so as we greet our failures and we're confronted over our failures, and there are many failures, we are able to boast in Christ, and to take these failures, if you will, offer them as thanksgiving of worship to him, not as Paul says, not as a means to sin it up more, that may lead people to think that, well then why don't we sin it up more, more sacrifices, more uh, thanksgiving to bring to God and praise him for what Christ has done for us, but we're enamored with him, we're caught with the beauty of Christ and his righteousness, and that motivates a desire to obey out of love. A number of years ago, I had the opportunity to take OBC 15, about 15 men from OBC to the Douglas County Youth Center. Uh, it was, it's a place for young men to be imprisoned for criminal activity. And I remember that day, they were so excited, 15 men. I mean, where do you find 15 men that are willing to, to meet on this occasion to serve? And so they were talking us up. Wow, we could use you. I'm so glad you've come. Well, we, we scattered out in this big room with these round tables, and we sat down with these young men, and many of us were spread out, so we had different uh, men to minister to, and we were sharing the gospel. And a number of leaders uh, from the youth center heard us, uh, even a chaplain. And they were upset. And one chaplain took us aside a little bit later and said, uh, what these men is a healthy dose of self-esteem. You need to build them up. And if you build up their self-esteem, their self-worth, they will cease from the criminal activity. We said, well, we affirmed uh, that they're image bearers and there is a, a beauty and value in, in that as image bearers, as God's creation. And we don't want to downplay that. But Romans 3.10, uh, Romans 3.23 underlined that 
all have sinned and fall short of his glory. And that drives us to Christ for hope and deliverance. The chaplain was not happy. And he turned to me and he said, would you give that kind of message to your children? Well, it just so happened to be that I brought my eight and nine-year-old son who was standing there. And I said, he said I could use his name, I'm not going to. He, he said, I said to him, I said, son, uh, what have you heard in our home? He said, well, dad, Romans 3.10 says, there's none righteous, no, not one. No one does good, not even one. I thought, praise the Lord, he said that, he quoted that verse, who knows? <laughs> oh, well, dad, you discipline us. Let's <laughs> ah, <laughs> not talk about that. Thankful for the Romans 3.10 that came out of, out of his heart. But you can see, since the turmoil that people come to grips with, when they hear our message, here's God's truth, here's sin, yet we have a glorious Savior, and we find great rest in Him. Ray Ortland Jr. was interviewed by the Gospel Coalition regarding the topics of self-justification and justification. He made some pretty vital connections. He said this, Self-justification is the deepest impulse in the fallen human heart. Let's consider our position. We were created to image God, but now we are distortions of God. We were located in a glorious universe, but now we experience it as an environment of accusation. That existence is impossible to bear. What do we do with it? We shift the blame in order to justify ourselves and relieve our anxiety. The whole world is a mess, and it's always someone else's fault. When was the last time somebody started a war by saying, Hey, everybody, I just want to admit I'm picking this fight. No, every war is defense. This is the human heart. With our mouths, our words, our narratives cut others down to build ourselves up. The worse they look, the better we look. But whenever we need negative things to be true about others, it's self-justification. And because it's about being right, it never feels wicked. It feels right, justified. He goes on. It all began in Genesis 3 with sinful Adam blaming Eve and God. The rest of the Bible is the story of God rescuing us from our self-justifying rage. In the cross of Christ, he said, need a scapegoat? I offer myself. Will you have me? We are stunned into humility. He then quotes from William Romain to bring this to a close. Consider thy state. Thou art a pardoned sinner, not under the law, but under grace, freely, fully saved from the guilt of all thy sins. There is none to condemn, God having justified thee. He sees thee in his son, wash thee in his blood, clothe thee in his righteousness, and he embraces him and thee, the head and the members, with the same affection. This is the message of the Bible. It is the only power in the universe that can create a new relationship that works. But that's outstanding. Freedom from self-justification. Freedom to find our hope in Christ Jesus. God is for us. As Paul says in Romans 8. Well, in Proverbs 21 he underlines the heart of wickedness as pride. So we're going to let the Bible have an x-ray in our hearts. It makes us uncomfortable. But it causes us to find hope, the only one that can give us hope, in Christ. In Proverbs 18, 10 through 12, let me just spill a little bit of context for Proverbs 21. 18, 10 through 12. It says this, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. In verse 12, he says, Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. The name of the Lord is a strong tower, but the contrast, before destruction, a man's heart is haughty. In Proverbs 20, verse 9, he, he says this, 
as we're moving to Proverbs 21, who can say I've made my heart pure? I am clean from my sin. Implication, rhetorical device. No one can say I have made my heart pure. I am clean from my sin. It takes us into our text. Proverbs 21, verse 2. Proverbs 21, verse 2. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. And then the text that we will build our time around it's the foundation for this text. Verse 4, haughty eyes, raised eyes, and a proud heart. The lamp of the wicked are sin. And so he notes that the haughty eyes, the proud heart, is the source of wickedness, the field, the lamp of wickedness, and calls it sin. Pride is the self-love of self-sovereignty. Pride sets self up as the sovereign dictator over self, others, and circumstances. Pride in the end loves to be God to self. Pride drives God out of one's own heart and endeavors to drive God out of the hearts of others. It has a supreme affection for self and uses others to receive this affection. Pride uses words to to cut others down. Pride isolates self to punish others to exalt self. Pride drops hints of good deeds done, fishes, to receive the worship and praise of others. Pride loves to talk about self to promote a sense of esteem in the eyes of others. Pride hates reproof. It cuts others lower to restore self to the throne of worship. Pride is discontent and grumbles. It needs control over the circumstances. Pride flirts, follows fashions, tells witty jokes to receive due attention. Pride pursues a sense of spirituality and effort to, to think that God is pleased with efforts of self. Pride quarrels and raises the voice to gain the higher hand to win the right to self-worship. You could take Proverbs and unfold these aspects of pride. Very convicting. Proverbs is like an x-ray, a spiritual x-ray on our hearts. Calls it what it is. Pride is the self-love of self-sovereignty. Now, when you take Proverbs 21 and you consider it as a whole, it is quite a unit. All 31 verses are intentionally connected to one another and must be considered as a passage whose thread flows seamlessly from verse 1 to verse 31. And it bleeds out into chapter 22 as well. We may dip a little bit into that. But taken as a whole, Proverbs 21, you will find five characteristics of pride. Five characteristics of pride. But we are given weapons for making war on pride. To make war on pride. Let me step back just a little bit. That sets the context for Proverbs 21. Maybe talk a little bit about the context of Proverbs as far as law. Because we're just jumping into Proverbs 21. I mean, who, who gets up here and expounds verse by verse a chapter of Proverbs? So maybe we need a little bit of background to understand the context of Proverbs 21. Uh, Romans 7, Paul says that God has given his law, it has a purpose, to reveal our sinful heart. Its precepts and commands call mankind into account before their judge and creator. The law confronts man with God's authority. Because of the fallen, sinful nature of man, when God's authority confronts the rebellious heart, well, the heart responds like a rebellious child confronted by his or her parents, spiritually throwing oneself on the floor and kicking and screaming. Paul says, when the law said, do not covet, he said, what come out? This attitude of coveting. How dare you? He says that when I didn't realize the, the coveting nature, when the law pressed on it and said, do not I was confronted with this authority and this rebellious spirit and heart came out. Paul says, 
what a wretched man that I am. Who will free me from this? So the law has a purpose. The book of Proverbs, you find a father bringing his son to him and using it pedagogically to, to instruct a child. In, Rome, in Proverbs 1 through 8, we, we find him instructing, if you will, a, a younger child using much color and, and metaphor, describing wisdom as a woman of, of life and folly as a strange, foreign, adulterous woman. Much color, much pictures. In Proverbs 9 through 31, they become very succinct statements, these precepts and commands. This week I observed a master in the art of swordsmanship, train a young boy in the art of combat with sword and shield. And he literally reached around the young boy and put one hand on the shield hand and one hand on the sword and, and showed him how to parry against attack and hit vulnerable points. And I thought, reminded me of David, Lord, you've trained my hands for war. The master putting his hands over the hands of the one learning. In each move, he's learning to respond to the attacker. Proverbs does that for the young man, the young woman. It helps us to understand the big picture of life and wisdom, temptations and trials, how sin and wickedness work to invade the heart with false words, to win the heart. It gives the promises of God through his glorious faithfulness, his character, his works, that we might find refuge in him. So it gives us... The, the, the means of attacking. And if you will, uh, God places his hands through Proverbs, if you will, upon our hands to lead us, to teach us how to think biblically, to fight, so that we can go out into the real world and engage. That's the heart of Proverbs. And we'll, we'll use it that way. There's much hope in Proverbs, but there's much instruction. Proverbs 21. In verse 1 through 2, verse 12, and verses 30 through 31, we see God's sovereignty. I want you to see that. Verses, verse 1, Proverbs 21. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And then he contrasts this. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. In verse 12, we're confronted again with the sovereignty of God. He is the righteous one who observes the house of the wicked. He throws the wicked down to ruin. So there we are confronted again with his sovereignty. In verse 30 and 31, we find the culmination of this text, but it does bleed out into 22. Um, verse 30 and 31, No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. So we're greeted with sovereignty, sovereignty, sovereignty. This becomes a means of warfare for us. We also find themes of righteousness and wickedness that thread this text. And it all flowing out of the motive of the heart in verse 4. Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked are sin. And verse 24, scoffer is the name of the arrogant, haughty man who acts with arrogant pride. So, wickedness, righteousness, the heart of it, the field of it, the source of it. Haughty eyes, a proud heart. But he doesn't just leave us hanging there. We find hope in God's sovereign provision. So five characteristics, I said. Let me preview them. Pride is self-sovereign, verses 1 through 4. Self-sovereign. Pride is self-perverted, verses 5 through 8. And we'll look at them uh, later on as we go through. So if you don't capture them all, we'll, we'll get them as we go through the text. Pride is self-pleasing, 9 through 18. 
Pride is self-consuming, 19 through 23, and pride is self-directed, 24 through 29. And each one of these were greeted with the sovereignty of God in one way or another. So the first characteristic of pride, pride is self-sovereign, 1 through 4. Let's read it. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked, are sin. Notice he begins with the sovereignty of God. He describes the king's heart. The king is seen, portrayed in the Old Testament as the mediator of God's blessings to God's people, either through judgment or through blessing. And so it's fitting to use the king as the representative of the people. But we find the king's heart is a stream, it's a channel in the hand of the Lord. The, The image is that of a farmer who builds small dams and cuts channels into his field to redirect the water from a rain or river to his field of crops. And notice, God, like the farmer, turns the heart wherever he wishes. He turns it wherever he wishes. He underscores that God is sovereign over the fruit of the human heart. That's intriguing here because, no doubt, The king is responsible for his motives and intentions, and yet God, superseding, guides and channels the responses of that heart to accomplish his purposes. And we'll look at that a little bit more. How do we find hope in this? Especially in contrast to verse 2, every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. When I see man's motives being addressed, the Lord weighs that. He knows the intentions, the thoughts, the motivations of the heart. And yet he is sovereign over the fruit of that, directing, leading, channeling. How do I make sense of that? Well, you find believers finding much hope in the reality of God's sovereignty. I want to show you two passages. Uh, Jonah, if you would go to the book of Jonah. Does the believer draw hope in the midst of a heart that is right in his own eyes? Self-sovereign. Well, he realizes that God's sovereign. He finds hope, encouragement. You know the story of Jonah? He, God sends him to Nineveh. He's going, no way. Terrorists. I've seen what they've done. I, I've been in the British Museum, and I got to see pictures where they filleted uh, those that they captured. Uh, Jonah didn't want to have anything to do with that. He knew that if he was going there to preach a gospel of, of mercy, that possibly the Lord would save them. He did not want that. And so he runs. But verse 4, The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. So the Lord hurls. He's active. He's sovereign. In verse 12, Jonah says to the sailors, This is the solution. You're in trouble because of me. Uh, That's my version. But he says in verse 12, Pick me up, hurl me into the sea, and then the sea will quiet down for you. So you pick me up, hurl me into the sea. Verse 15, So they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. So, personal responsibility, they hurled him into the sea. But notice, as Jonah pursues this understanding of the salvation of the Lord in chapter 2, he must come to grips with the sovereignty of God. And so in chapter 2, verse 3, he says this, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. Wait a minute, I thought you said the sailors did. They did. But yet the Lord did it through the sailors. 
you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. He describes being hemmed in, hemmed in by the Lord. In verses 4 through 7. And then he says this in verse 8. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. It's covenant salvation love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He's ready to draw from the promises of salvation when he's able to see the hand of the Lord's sovereignty even over his life, even being cast into the depth of the sea. Yes, through the hand of the sailors. I don't have time to look at Habakkuk, but Habakkuk, you see much of the same. Habakkuk's complaining of the injustice of Israel. What are you going to do about that, Lord? Are you just letting us go? And the Lord says, never fear, I'm doing a work. I'm raising up the Chaldeans. They're going to come in and they're going to judge. Wait a minute, the Chaldeans are more perverse than Israel. That makes no sense. Don't fear, they're going to, it's going to be like a drunkard running to wine and, and they can't get enough and that drunkenness turns around and enslaves them. And the nations that they try to conquer are going to turn around upon them. And Habakkuk responds much the same way as Jonah. Well, you're beyond me. Chaldeans are responsible for their own sinful hearts, and yet you superintend accomplishing your purposes. Salvation's from the Lord. Proverbs 21 provides much encouragement when we grasp God's sovereignty. Yes, there's a mystery there. Yes, there's a mystery, but there is great encouragement as we turn to our sovereign God who is in control. And we're driven to remember the promises of salvation as Jonah and Habakkuk. Let's look a little bit at the haughty eyes in verse 4. Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked are sin. Now, haughty eyes is eyes that are raised up to look down from on high at others. It has the idea of our perceptions of other people and I don't know about you, but I find myself doing that, thinking that I know what other people are thinking about me. Or I did this, are they thinking this about me? It's, it's, it's a heart raised up that has this evaluation of others as if I'm the all-seeing eye. Haughty eyes raised up. Proud heart. Rahav is the idea of no limits. It's unrestrained thoughts, desires that have no boundaries. It's a heart that's raised up against God. A heart that behaves as if it were the infinite, supreme, exalted God. But then he says this, the lamp of the wicked are sin. It's underscoring its source. Now, there are some different texts. Um, I don't want to get into the details of this, but the lamp, idea of lamp, comes from a Greek translation of the Old Testament. There's also Hebrew manuscripts that are helpful, and that's why you'll see ESV at the very bottom there talk about plowing. It's a plowed field. But either way, it's underlining the root and source. I like the idea of plowed field because he's going to describe the, this produce of this heart in the following verses. But certainly you could talk about the effulgence of this lamp as well um, displayed in sinful activity as we're going to look at this text. Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked are sin. How do we find hope in God's sovereignty here? Proverbs 16. Proverbs 16. We saw Jonah. He said, you cast me into the deep. And that drove him to have a proper perspective of God's sovereignty. The Lord was chastening him, even through the hand of the sailors. And it drove him 
to draw from the promises of salvation, Proverbs 16 offers the same antidote for us. This is how we glory in God's sovereignty. Proverbs 16, verse 1. The plans of the heart belong to man. He's dealing with his motives and intentions. God is not the source of sin. But the answer of the tongue, that's the fruit, is from the Lord. So the Lord is directing even the motives of the heart to accomplish his purposes. What a mystery, but yet he safeguards his glory and his sovereignty. Verse 2. All the ways of man, so he's folding what it means to the plans of the heart belonging to man. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. So as a man looks at his character, his overall life, he says, well done. But the Lord weighs the inner man. The invitation then, verse 3, commit your work to the Lord, your plans will be established. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. So in light of this reality, entrust your life to the Lord. Verse 5, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination. Whew, that's hellfire talk. Abomination to the Lord, the arrogant in heart. Be assured, so there's confidence in self. That confidence, abomination, he says. Be assured, here's where your true confidence should be, not in yourself, but he will not go unpunished. Whew. He knows my heart. He weighs my inner man. I'm called to commit my work to the Lord. I realize I don't. He confronts me with arrogance, but he gives us hope in verse 6. I love this. By steadfast love, it's the word hesed, it describes a covenant salvation love in which we're bound to the Lord in salvation through redemption. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. Now that's how you go underneath the x-ray of scripture, have our hearts confronted, and then run to his faithfulness which we see carried out in the obedient life of Jesus Christ, his fulfillment of the law, and his covenant love in which he binds us to himself in salvation to atone for our sins. What hope. This is how Proverbs 16 encourages our hearts when we're confronted with our pride. And we're reminded that where sin abounds, grace the more abounds. We see pride and we fight pride by boasting in Christ's atonement. So the first characteristic we've seen, we take actions against it by confronting our hearts, our self-sovereign hearts with the sovereignty of God. We find hope in the promises of redemption. Pride, secondly, is perverted. Perverted. And here we find verses 5 through 9 carrying out the produce, the field of a prideful heart. And we're going to have to do this quickly. Verse 5, the plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. And again, this is flowing out of the one who does what's right in his own eyes. This is descriptions of that kind of folly in Proverbs 21.5. He's hasty. Verse 6, he underlines the nature of the tongue. The tongue that flows out of this heart that is described as haughty and proud. What does it look like? Well, verse 6. The getting of treasures by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor and a snare of death. So this heart, this field, this lamp, what does it produce? A lying tongue that tries to get treasures. 
by manipulating and controlling through the use of words. He says it's a fleeting vapor and a snare of death. The tongue is perverted. The actions are perverted in verse 7. The violence of the wicked will sweep them away because they refuse to do what is just. So pride not only perverts truth, the word, but also perverts the actions, the violence of the wicked. And notice, will sweep them away. God is so judged that their own violence has an effect upon them. Isaiah 64, 6 through 7 says, We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Our iniquities take us. They drag us away. He says, You've hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. We've melted in the hand of our own iniquities. We've been dragged away by our sin. The way also is perverted. Verse 8. The way of the guilty is crooked, but the conduct of the pure is upright. So the words, the tongue, the actions, and the whole character of the life, the way is crooked, but the conduct of the pure is upright. And so interesting how Proverbs does this. It indicts the life and then says, you want a personal illustration? Look at your family life. (laughs) What does your home look like? And so in verse 9, it's better to live in a corner of the housetop. That would be up there exposed to the wind and the rain and the storms than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. So unless we're going, oh, I have no problems, it invites us to look at our home life and to go, wait a minute, (laughs) is there evidence of this perverted ton of these behaviors. What's the antidote? He says in verse 8, well, the conduct of the pure is upright. The conduct of the pure is upright. From here, I want to draw from Proverbs 22, verse 17. How is the conduct captured? Well, Proverbs 22, 17 tells us that when the word of God captures the heart, it affects, it captures the lips as well, and Captures one's trust in the Lord. This is how the conduct can be said to be pure. Incline your ear and hear the words of the wise and apply your heart to my knowledge, for it will be pleasant if you keep them within you. So apply the the heart to the word, to wisdom, to knowledge, for it will be pleasant. It will be a delight. If you keep them within you, that's in the heart. If all of them are ready on your lips, so it's the heart is so captured by the word of God. I believe he's talking to a son who needs to embrace the promises of God's word as a believer. He says in verse 19 that your trust may be in the Lord. So the word captures the heart, captures the desires, and engages the heart to trust in the Lord, to rest upon him. He says in 20 and 21, Have I not written for you 30 sayings of counsel and knowledge to make you know what is right and true, that you may give a true answer to those who sent you? You say, how can I have conduct that's captured by purity? He invites us to run to the word and the wisdom of God that captures our hearts. In Proverbs 23, verse 19, he says, Hear, my son, be wise and direct your heart in the way. Be not among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat. So the wisdom of God's word captures the son's heart so that he loves and delights in wisdom and he doesn't find his hope in food. The same principle applies in protecting the son from the prostitute. In verse 26, My son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways, for prostitute is a deep pit. So the word captures the heart as we've seen in Proverbs twenty-two nineteen, that your trust may be in the Lord. And from that as a basis, the, the mouth overflows with the word of God and the, the, the conduct overflows with the word of God. 
I, um, it's so funny to watch my family. I don't know if you experienced this, but you'll watch a, a fun movie like um, Frozen. It's probably been the, the latest one that we keep regurgitating. But there's that uh, guy from Norway, um, and she enters this little cabin, and he says, you, you who? Do you remember that? Biggest summer blowout? It's so funny because we'll be walking around, and someone will say, you who? Biggest summer blowout is just immediately what comes out of our, our, our mouths. We're at a birthday party in Lincoln, and someone's trying to get a hold of their little kids. You who? And then my daughter, biggest summer blowout. <laughs> or my son, biggest summer blowout. It just comes right out of our hearts. We've been talking about it, making fun of it, joking. It's an automatic response. The things that we value that captures our heart, it's ready on the lips. So how do we deal with a way, a conduct, the heart that is corrupt? We place ourselves before the word of God. It captures our heart as believers. So our trust is in the Lord. And his word is ready on our lips and it protects us. It guards us. So we deal with self-sovereignty by running to God's sovereignty and the hope of salvation. We deal with the heart of pride by putting our hearts before the word of God to be captured by the supremacy of God. Pride is also self-pleasing, self-pleasing, verses 10 through 19. And here we're just going to draw attention to some of the statements of pleasure that is rooted in wickedness. In verse 10, the soul of the wicked desires evil. His neighbor finds no mercy in his eyes. So see the, the underlining theme of desire. Remember we saw Proverbs twenty-two seventeen when the word captures the heart. It's ready on the lips. There's trust in the Lord. Well, when pride speaks within the heart, it too is swan by desires, desires evil. The affections need to be captured. Verse 13, whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. It's a description of those who desire evil and they want. Verse 14, a gift in secret averts anger and a concealed bribe a strong wrath. I think the best way to deal with this is in the context of 13 and 14. There are those who are upset that the poor are taken advantage of, but their anger is averted when they're given a bribe, and so their desires are captured, and they restrain their mouths. Verse 17, whoever loves pleasure will be a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not be rich. So again, driven by the love of pleasure, driven by the love of wine, driven by the love of evil desires. That's how, the, that's how pride speaks and works is through self-pleasure. How do we combat that? With God's pleasure. With God's pleasure. I love verse 15. Right in the core of this section, he says, When justice is done, it is a joy to the righteous, but terror to evildoers. Believers love the righteousness and justice of God. They cling to it. They delight in it. When they love God's righteousness, they're able to to see that God will get his pleasure. In verse 18, we see God's pleasure. The wicked is a ransom for the righteous and the traitor for the upright. So the Lord will pop the wicked into the place of the righteous. That's God's ultimate answer. In verse 17, we see God's pleasure. Whoever loves pleasure will be a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not be rich. God ensures that that person who finds pleasure in self will end up empty. In verse 16, we see God's pleasure against injustice. One who wanders from the way of good sense will rest in the assembly of the dead. There is judgment to come. Verse 13, 
we also see God's pleasure. Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. He's the ultimate judge. In verse 12, the righteous one observes the house of the wicked. He throws the wicked down to ruin. That's God's pleasure, and it will be ultimately displayed in justice. Those who trust in him love his justice. Uh, Robin and I went to a, 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 it was a free concert in, in the Papillion area, so now you can nail it all down where we were at, but thought we'd drop in for a little bit. It was some blues that were being played, very young band. And there was this, uh, I would say, oh, he's probably about my age or so, a, a man had Down syndrome. And he was standing up there, and when that music started to go, he turned around, he's in the front of the stage and faced everybody and, and started acting as if he was playing the music he was entertaining the crowd. He was bowing. I mean, it was amazing. I told Robin, I want to just watch him. He's just full of exuberance and passion and joy as he's hearing the blues. And I wouldn't put, me, put it past me to, that, that he probably studied the blues and was, and, and, and was exposed to the blues on a daily basis. I thought, you know, how do we fight pride? We, we, we have a, a deep-seated joy in God's justice. We love his righteousness. How can we say we love his righteousness? Because we know that he's for us, that he's atoned for our sins by his steadfast love and by his faithfulness. So yes, as our pride is revealed, we're humbled, but it causes us to glory in the Lord. And in glory in the Lord, we're able to turn to those who are also captured by pride and offer a glorious Savior. Pride is also self-consuming. Self-consuming, number four. Pride inhales all of God's gracious gifts, thinks nothing of it. And we see this in, in verse 20. Precious treasure and oil are in a, man, a wise man's dwelling. Now, he's going to talk about the wise man, the, the, the righteous. So keep this in context. The precious treasure and oil are there in his dwelling. But a foolish man devours it. So now we're going to ask, well, what are the treasures, the oil, as he's, he's spiritualizing them, no doubt, through the rest of this text. What is it that the, the foolish devours and consumes? He inhales. I think of my two dogs. You know, you, sometimes you just pity them. They're sitting there drooling over the steak that you're eating at the table. And they can't come up to the table, but you kind of leave a little bit. And you throw this precious steak that, you know, it's cost quite a, quite a lot. And they just gulp. It's gone. Why did I do that? I could have eaten that. Why did you just swallow it? Just chew it and enjoy it. They don't. Gone. Gone. Well, he says this is the foolish heart to the treasure and oil that's in a wise man's dwelling. What do they swallow? Well, they swallow life. In verse 21, whoever pursues righteousness and kindness will find life, righteousness, and honor. Again, that's flowing out of the wise man's dwelling. But the fool consumes that. He, he, he wants nothing to do with that. So he's rejecting life by not pursuing righteousness that God offers. He swallows righteousness in verse 21b. Whoever pursues righteousness and kindness will find life, righteousness, and honor. So he throws out life. He doesn't pursue righteousness on God's terms. He throws out righteousness is given by God as a provision through faith, and with it he throws out honor. Pride also swallows the strongholds of trust in verse 22. A wise man scales the city of the mighty and brings down the stronghold in which they trust. The pride have built up a fortress around them. It will be brought low. And then verse 23, it swallows self. Whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself, his soul, out of trouble. 
with the pride of heart and raise themselves up above God, their soul is in trouble. Where's our hope? I love verse 21. Whoever pursues righteousness and kindness will find life, righteousness, and honor. And you can look at this in two ways. One is the principle. If you pursue righteousness, you'll gain life. Well, we don't pursue righteousness. There is none righteous, no, not one. And that introduces Jesus Christ as a glorious Savior. There's a second way to look at that, and that is the one who, who is confronted with righteousness on God's terms through his law, through Proverbs, on God's terms, will find the hope of righteousness, life, and honor in God's provision. You say, where do you get that? Well, Proverbs 30 is beautiful summation to the book of proverbs proverbs 30 and it's not here happenstance it's an answer to the dilemma of here's the wicked here's the righteous here's god's law we're transgressors where's the help well agar says this he sums it all up in verse one of proverbs 30 the man declares so this is a summation I am weary, O God, I am weary, O God, and worn out. That's the proper response of one who pursues righteousness on God's terms. He's confronted with the, with the standard of God's righteousness. It's unmitigated, it's unswerving, it's faithful, it's true. And his answer should be, I'm weary, I'm worn out. What about his view of wisdom? Well, he says this in verse 2. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. That is a proper response. Not all, try to do better, try harder, try to gain wisdom from myself. It's despair of self. Where's the answer? Verse 4. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Sounds like Ephesians 4. Because the only one who can accomplish this is one who has the right to ascend. Who has gathered the wind in his fist? Sounds like the Gospels. Wrapped up the waters in a garment. Who's established all the ends of the earth? And then this shocking statement in the Old Testament. What is his name and what is his son's name? Surely you know. Well, the New Testament unpacks that for us. It's the son who ascends because he's first descended. He's the one that controls the wind and the water, who established the ends of the earth. What should be our response? Not to say, I can pursue righteousness on my own terms. I can justify myself. It's, I'm weary, I'm worn out, I'm stupid. I'm going to run to the sun. And that's where he takes us. Verse 5, every word of God proves true. He's a shield to those who take refuge in him. That's our refuge. Sounds like Proverbs 16, 6. Verse 12 and 13, he says, There are those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their filth. Sounds like Romans 3. There are those, how lofty are their eyes, how high their eyelids lift. The proper response is hopelessness of self. Pursue righteousness, as Philippians 3 says. And you find the righteousness of God through faith, not by your own works, but through faith in Christ's perfect righteousness. And that leaves us lastly with the fifth Characteristic of pride, it is self-directed. It is self-directed. And go back to verse 24. And again, we're just going to hit these really quickly. Pride exalts self. Verse 24a. Scoffer is the name of the arrogant, haughty man who acts with arrogant pride. He's proud, he's haughty. It's an exaggerated opinion about self. Promote self. There's scoffer. Scoffers deride the truth that stands above him. He must tear it down through derision and mockery. He fulfills self. Verse 25, the desire of the sluggard kills him, 
for his hands refuse to labor. All day long he craves and craves, but the righteous gives and does not hold back. He exalts self, he promotes self, he fulfills self, he worships self. Verse 27, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. How much more when he brings it with evil intent? So there's one other antidote that the pride of heart want to use if they don't run to God's righteousness, and that is to try to outweigh their good with their religi- their bad with their religiosity. And the Lord says those sacrifices, that religiosity is an abomination. You can't cover pride. Listen to self, verse 28. A false witness will perish, but the word of a man who hears will endure. What you want to know about the parallelism of Proverbs is that they're contrasting the word of a man who hears versus the false witness. The false witness does not hear. That is why he's a false witness. He listens to himself, does not listen to the truth. And lastly, he parades self. A wicked man, verse 29, puts on a bold face, but the upright gives thought to his ways. Wow. Robin and I recently snorkeled for the first time. The challenge for me was to not hyperventilate. <laughs> In fact, the first time I get this thing on, the snorkel's up, and I'm like, I go down. You know what happened? Salt water's going through the, the snorkel. Roop, roop, roop. I come back up. She's like, honey, you got to stay on the surface. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I was wondering why that salt water was coming in my mouth. <laughs> it's not working. But I thought, that the principle's amazing. I mean, here we are underneath the water, looking through this glass, just like we're in an aquarium, drawing air from above. This is the hope that he gives to us. As we're, we're dealing with the world, we're dealing with the flesh, where's our hope? Drawing from the promises of God's provision. In the moment we kind of dip that baby down and we start trusting in our own strength to muster it up and do better, try harder. Ah, salt, spiritual salt, bitterness. What's, what's going on? Help. Well, look what he says in verse 30. What a reminder. No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can thwart the Lord because victory already belongs to him. How can you say that? Well, the the, the title Lord, Yahweh, underlines that he's a self-existent, self-sufficient one, but it's also used in context of redemption. He is the redeemer. Victory belongs to him by virtue of who he is and what he's done. Therefore, no counsel or wisdom or understanding can thwart him. And we're told in 1 Corinthians 1, 18, that in Christ Jesus are righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So we rest in God's sovereignty to fight self-sovereignty. We're captured by God's word to fight self-perversion and contrariness. We rejoice in God's pleasure to fight self-pleasure. We pursue God's righteousness in Christ to fight self-consuming pride that leads to self-righteousness. And we rest in God's victory to fight self-directed effort. I'll close with Jonathan Edwards. He says this, Hereby God is wisely provided for the mortifying of our pride, for he has set forth this person that appeared thus meanly and obscurely in the world, that was born in a stable and laid in a manger, that was poor and had not where to lay his head, was despised and rejected of men as our Lord and our God, for us to submit to and obey and serve and adore, and this upon pain of eternal damnation. What a mortification is this to the pride of man that naturally esteems and admires those things that appear with earthly splendor and magnificence. Lord, we lay our hearts before you, and as your people... 
we boast in Christ. We're reminded in Romans 5 that where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. And so we see as our hearts are confronted by trials and blessings and we respond in arrogance, high evaluation of ourselves above others. When we're confronted, we justify ourselves. We blame shift. We, we're, we're told to run to Christ. And we lay down our arms. We, we lay down our, our empty blankets that try to cover our shame and guilt that fail us, that are unthreaded before your glorious penetration, your omniscience. And we find hope, renewed hope and encouragement in the righteousness that you've provided for eternity in the personal work of Jesus Christ. And so we glory in him, we boast in him, and we're freed to serve. So Lord, capture our hearts with the glory of Christ, we ask. We ask that we'd understand that victory belongs to you in each day that we see our failures, or we're given opportunity to try in our own strength to do better, to deal with our own hearts. We remember that victory belongs to you, and you've accomplished that victory in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.